This episode is sponsored by Voltoro. Keep on listening and you'll find out more about how you can buy allocated gold when the Bitcoin bull run reaches its peak. This way, you don't have to deal with infinitely inflationary fiat or banks that freeze your account. Also, note that trading involves risks and the information presented is not financial advice. This episode is also sponsored by Wasabi Wallet. Go to wasabiwallet.io, download Wasabi for your OS and significantly boost your network level and transaction privacy. Hello there and welcome to Season 9, Episode 2 of the Bitcoin Takeover Podcast. I am Vlad and my guest today is Vlad. And I've always wanted to say this, not in the sense that I talk to myself, but in the sense that I'm talking to somebody who's actually named Vlad and is an early Bitcoiner who ended up diverging to another project about which we're not going to talk necessarily today. And his name is Vlad Zamfair, and he has done a lot of interesting stuff in the space, and he is into philosophy. He considers himself an absurdist sometimes, and I'm pretty sure that we're going to have a lot to talk about, about, you know, topics like proof of work and Coda's law and everything else about which he might have a different opinion as opposed to the regular Bitcoiner or not. Let's see. So hi, Vlad. Hey, um, I love love the introduction. Really appreciate it. You know, I don't often get introduced <clears throat> with philosophy or absurdism, but I love these topics, and you know, would love to just spend a little time talking about absurdism. Now that you brought it up, because like normally I don't get a chance to, and then maybe we can pivot into you know the rest of the more crypto Bitcoin adjacent kind of conversation. Okay, so do you find anything absurdist about this whole space? Ooh, uh, I would say the space is, uh, there are some absurdist elements, mostly highly rationalist, but highly, highly absurd. So, you know, absurd and absurdism are like quite different. So like usually what people do is they like struggle in the absurd without any idea that they're doing that. And then like, you know, if you're an absurdist, you'll kind of like recognize and emphasize the absurd and like use it analytically to like figure out, you know, like as what I'm doing you know, absurd or not. Um, And so, uh, you know, the absurdist might be more aware of the absurd. And there are definitely absurdists in crypto. I I have been watching the word absurd become more and more popular over time in crypto. But uh, just because there's a lot of absurd stuff doesn't mean there's a lot of absurdists. You know, rationalist times are highly, highly absurd because everyone just thinks in their confirmation bias that, like, everything is reasonable, everything makes sense when really... You know, there's like self-defeat all around. Um, but absurdism, you know, traditionally is kind of understood vis-a-vis existentialism through the recognition that the search for meaning in life is absurd, uh, which is to say that it's self-defeating and self-limiting and that like, you know, you should stop so that you could actually have meaning in life rather than to like destroy everything through your improper relationship with meaning basically where you kind of are trying to say like meaning has to be justified with reason when that's like deeply unwise and unrealistic and not really to do with the nature of meaning or existence or, you know, doesn't have like a reason in, a, in like a rational place in the world, let's say. 
Uh, and so it's quite it can be it's quite absurd like the rationalism that we see in the space. And I think that that's you know just kind of mostly because we're living in highly rationalist times. I don't think cryptocurrency is necessarily particularly rationalist, except for maybe that there's like a bunch of nerds, and nerds tend to be more rationalist. But let me also say that like absurdism for me is much more broad than just about this existentialist questions. I'm also I also apply it to like epistemology, political science slash philosophy, and lots of other areas. Because um, like self defeat, you know, is everywhere. Right, and it makes a lot of sense now that you mention it. And I suppose it makes sense to be an absurdist when you're trying to look for vulnerabilities in a computer system, regardless of its nature, and just start from assumptions that others are not considering, so that you have an edge in finding vulnerabilities or potential threats to the system. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, in, in, in many ways, you know, computer science was like founded on the absurd Principia Mathematica and like, you know, like the absurd f- classical mathematics that, you know, uh, so, so, so like that like led to the, the modern notion of computation in terms of function evaluation and uh, Turing machines. Um, and so actually, like, you know, me being a heretic or whatever, I think that, like, computer scientists, you know, take a lot of absurd assumptions just because of, like, the historical accidents. Um, and, but, you know, this is me being kind of high, highly heretical here, so I just want to hold back, see if you could redirect the conversation before I dig myself into a hole. Okay, well, let's not dig you into a hole. <laughs> that would be a bad idea. So... You are an early Bitcoiner, and I don't think you get enough credit for that, and I don't think that you get to talk too much about that. So what was it philosophically that got you into Bitcoin? Um, I was, like, super interested in in global financial markets and, uh, you know, global capital flows, international trade, and this kind of stuff. And then basically there was, like, the crisis in Malta, Sorry, Cyprus. <laughs> um, in 2013, that like kind of really got me interested in Bitcoin. I'd heard of Bitcoin before, but I th- and I thought it was like super cool from the point of view of like doing monetary theory and analysis and like trying to see like oh look how like really does like the velocity of money affect the price level and all this kind of stuff. So I had like this interest in Bitcoin, just like kind of academic. But when the Cyprus uh, crisis happened, I was like you know, actually started getting obsessed. I started reading everything, going to like all the meetups, trying to absorb all the information that I can, listen to all the podcasts, like, um, and I became like, you know, like a Bitcoiner in through basically this kind of like, you know, basically what you can call like the like 2013 sound money, like international kind of like speculator kind of like scene of, of uh, uh, that, you know, kind of, still characterizes Bitcoin to this day, but, you know, and has since the start. Uh, but, like, that's kind of how I got into Bitcoin. Like, I really thought, like, you know, Bitcoin was the future of money. And, like, I really believed, like, all this kind of, like, you know, like the the, the story of Bitcoin as, like, it kind of is normally traditionally told. Uh, and so I was like, yeah, I was like a Bitcoiner oh, through and through. I was, like, really excited for, like, you know, this great shift in like the global monetary system and stuff. But, um, you know, I since became a little more jaded, but, um, but you know, 
Uh, that's how I got in. You know, that's the <laughs> that's the embarrassing facts of the situation, basically. But it's not so embarrassing. I mean, you know, but it's like just a little embarrassing for me now. Okay. Just for the record, the the situation in Cyprus was the one which concerned the banks going bankrupt and everyone trying to do bank runs and they were limited to withdrawing like 20 to 50 euro a day from their bank accounts? Um, there, there were like limits on withdrawals or like withdrawals were just like shut down. It was like a bail-in in order to pay back uh, debt to the EU, if I remember correctly. So this was like during the European financial crisis. Uh, and so they, they, were, they, were, they basically did a bail-in in order to like seize money from people's bank accounts in order to pay back debt. Um, and that was like their like national policy or whatever. And so like that's like a r- rather extreme case of like, you know, governments appropriating people's capital in order to pay back their debts. And that's like, you know, politically was like very interesting that Bitcoin was like a way to, for people to not be captured in that scenario. Yeah, I suppose that was also during the days when people were a lot more careful about not using custodian services. What we see today is that we get exchanges which get excessively big, if you ask me. They have a lot of power, they have a lot of control. I don't want to get into this, but in some proof-of-stake system, exchanges end up being some of the biggest players. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, you know, I'm happy to get into it. And, you know, I think in in, in general, the issue basically is that, like, uh, the barrier to entry in crypto is lower if you have, like, someone else hold your keys. And so people like those services and, you know, have come to trust them and rely on them, even despite hacks and, like, the obvious, like, you know, if you lose, if they, you know, the, the obvious, like, counterparty risk. Um, and then, like, you know, in terms of, like, proof of stake and proof of stake security, uh, there's there's... There's a couple of relevant things. One of them is, okay, well, in proof of stake, it's relatively easier to get coins than it is to get mining, mining equipment. And so, uh, and it's relatively easy, relatively easy to like withdraw coins, like the barrier to moving coins and the barrier to moving mining equipment, the barrier to acquiring them is all lower. And so uh, the ability to react and the ability to compete is, should, should be better. Um, and the other thing is, like, I am super duper in favor of using crypto law against exchanges in order to prohibit them from offering financial products uh, as, like, stake derivatives. Like, I don't think staking is a financial instrument. And if people consider it as such, like, I think that they are basically committing a legal foul. And I think that there are legal strategies where basically, like, you can basically make it extremely cumbersome or prohibitive um, or, like, downright unprofitable for exchanges to offer the service. <laughs> That's actually, uh, I think, the most interesting side of you, the fact that you talk so much about law and you consider everything from the perspective of the powers that exist already in place. Well, um, so for me, law is like a lot more about like how do we, and like what is the culture associated with conflict and that like structures and modifies and constitutes conflict. And definitely like, you know, the powers that be like, you know, are kind of very much part of like the way that society has conflict. Um, but, in, but in this case, you know, I'm thinking like about just like through new legal acts, like new legal postures, like we can do this, like, you know, kind of taking power from exchanges. Um, uh, it's really interesting, actually, how I got into law uh, through basically uh, blockchain governance discussions. 
So, you know, I got into blockchain governance through working on this space and basically being concerned about how, like, my work is going to be used and how and whether this is all, like, right and, like, what we're doing, what we're getting into and, like, how we're, what are our commitments really. And um, and then that naturally got me into law discussions because basically, like, law and governance are kind of tied at the hip and uh, basically because there's lots of conflict in governance and law sort of governs conflict so to speak um <clears throat> and so i became interested in law really like only a couple of years ago i'm still i'm like super obsessed that i'm like you know trying to like learn aggressively as fast as i can but um i'm still an amateur you know I, but i but i definitely have like sort of like legal theses and stuff that i like like to talk about in crypto because i like you know grappling with these problems um and, you know, when you get a certain amount of legal education, it's, like, hard not to uh, bring that analysis to certain problems. Like, for example, like, how do you deal with people trying to make financial products out of staking, for example? Right. I actually remembered that when I recorded the first podcast interview with uh, a guy whose name is Donald McIntyre. I suppose you know him. And I suppose you blocked yeah, each other. Yeah, he's one of on my like most pers- he's, yeah, he's one of my most persistent and annoying trolls. Um, <laughs> yeah, he mentioned he was super duper. He was super duper against the DAO hard fork, and you know, ever since that, he and I kind of like had this like, you know, he just constantly harasses me whenever he gets a chance. I mean, not anymore. I mean, like the last couple of years, he's been relatively less trolling me aggressively. But every once in a while, he'll come by and like dunk on me. I suppose he got banned on Twitter or something, and that's the reason. But he's back. No, he's he's back. I mean, he. I mean, he's he's got alts and stuff. I mean. Anyway, he mentioned that since the early days, you're excessively concerned about this idea that somebody might do something terrible on the blockchain, might put there something that's illegal, and you're concerned about how developers would react to that and what they would have to do in order to normalize the situation, or else do something to change the situation. So what's your take? I suppose it gets reflected on your stance during the DAW hack and how you're in favor of the hard fork. But what is your take on this whole code is law situation? Yeah, so, you know, um, I, I think I think the, 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 the code is law basically can be summed up as, you know, thou shall not dispute the code. And or thou shalt not change the code in order to deal with your disputes, and, and 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 or basically that like the code is hard to change or has like some some legal force where basically in a dispute you don't change the code unless like you absolutely have to and it's like the last possible choice and it's like the last resort so to speak, or you know just a high bar to bear so that the norm is that like you don't dispute the code, and so you know. Um, and I think that is like also related to this question of like, yeah, what should developers do in the context of conflict over what's happening in the blockchain? I'm not so concerned about like, you know, a formal designation of some act as illegal by a legal system. I'm more concerned about like stuff that's like really deeply unlawful. Um, and like, you know, I don't believe in any way that like the law is bounded to the jurisdiction of legal systems. And there are grossly unlawful things that you can do that aren't designated as illegal in any of these legal systems. And I think, you know, that's problematic also. And I don't really, like, I'm not really talking about, like, illegal when I'm worried about this 
so much as much as I'm worried about like unlawful and basically like especially in particular like super unlawful. And the distinction between like illegal and unlawful is something that I just want to plug real quick. Uh, basically like lawful, you know, kind of is about uh, legal judgment or normatively charged legal judgment. So like, you know, whether it's like um, in sound legal judgment, this is like something that is like something that like you should do or shouldn't do. Whereas illegal is a formal designation under a legal system. And like legal systems are, uh, you know, not the whole of the law. And like, you know, legal systems are able to do things that are super unlawful, including unlawful designations of things as illegal. And so like, I don't necessarily want to give legal systems this position of determining what's lawful and not. Sure, legal systems are a part of how we deal with conflict today, but like, you know, not in crypto law so much and not in lots of places where basically legal systems don't have like the strongest foothold in the world. Um, and so like I think of the law much more kind of broadly and I think about it in terms of like judgment in disputes. And so, you know, um, I, in my opinion, like to say that software shouldn't be subject to dispute in particular with this kind of posture that's like aggressive and political, you know, is basically like I think um, unsustainable and maybe like something that's like sustainable for a little bit, but like it's not really like um, something that can survive in the law for very long. I think that's a lot more nuanced than anything you can read on Twitter. So I'm happy that you have made this distinction between lawful and legal, basically. Yeah, legal in the sense of opposite of illegal, not legal in the sense of having to do with the law. Exactly. But you see, one of the reasons why I like Bitcoin is that I regard it as a more objective system, which is not, which doesn't care. That's kind of the charm. It doesn't care what we want from it. It's just a system that we should not change and has some very basic and hard consensus rules that we're not going to change. It just adds some more objectivity to a world where basically everything has become political and everything can be changed. Mm-hmm. I mean, <clears throat> I understand that. And I think that there, there's kind of like this you know, instinct of wanting certainty as a means to security. Uh, but I think ultimately at the end of the day, when it comes to like law and politics in real life, um, uh, certainty and security aren't the same thing and you need to like accept a certain level of undeterminism in order to be secure. Like if you just take a hard line like I am sur- sure of this no matter what happens politically and legally, you're actually less secure than if you maintain room to maneuver and are willing to accept the non-determinism in law and politics. So I think, you know, it's normal and like you see it a lot in like the way that people deal with legal systems today. They want legal systems to be predictable. They want certainty and at the cost of security, uh, basically because they will rather be sure of something and like use that to like plan and use that to argue than to kind of have to judge all the time and have basically this more flexibility in different settings um, that like is kind of more the baseline legal reality when people aren't forcing certainty. Yeah, that makes sense. But at the same time, I've already told you why I think Bitcoin is great and why I like it. And I do understand that at some point there might be hard forks to change some stuff, specifically maybe because of quantum computing or something. 
that can be a very valid reason, which I accept. But other than that, if somebody decides something like let's add more inflation or let's change some very basic rules about block validation or about mining and stuff like that, I don't think I would agree with it. And I, I don't think most sovereign node operators would agree to change these. Yeah, I mean, you know, it would take a lot given that today the norm and the like the doctrine and the practice and the whole like pseudo crypto religion, you know, is set up around this premise. I mean, it's it's hard to for that to see to see how that's going to change in like the short term or anything, but like it's it's in the long term there are things uh that are easier to imagine like for example, um, the block rewards getting to zero, like yeah, the quantum thing, the the and and and, and the the like the quite, basically fifty one percent attacks. You know, do you want revert limits? Do you want proof of stake? Like, how? What's the solution when if there's a lot of fifty one percent attacks? You know, so there is like there are certain edge cases and scenarios where it's easy to see why there would be a hard fork. Um, but then you have to also recognize, or like I think that we should recognize that like the future is uncertain and that actually the most strategic thing is probably not something we can commit to now and that like it's better let's say um if we were to consider uh bitcoin as a person for temporarily it's better for bitcoin in some way to be adaptive although of course you know bitcoin is not really it's not really a person i mean um or at least this the the discussion about like whether it makes sense to regard Bitcoin as like a person or like a system is still kind of like up in the air, uh, from like a legal perspective. Right, but I'm happy at the same time that they figured out the soft forks, and they can run upgrades without making the rest of the network necessarily move to the new code version. It's optional. You can rely on some sort of 2013 code or else run SegWit and Taproot and all of that stuff? Yeah, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, for, for, for me, to me, it's like you act, it seems like less rights than the hard fork model, basically because um, you can be left behind and, you know, you don't get to impose a cost on other people if you decide to stay behind. Whereas, like, in the hard fork model, if you say, I'm not going to upgrade, you know, that imposes a cost on everyone and basically forced them to like consider your interests and why you're saying like that you're not going to upgrade and why you're like threatening to fork basically. Um, and so in my opinion, like the hard fork model provides like, you know, a better kind of like a governance deal to these um, to nodes. Cause like in the, in the soft fork model, you could basically be left behind and like the whole economy's gone, like on the future versions, and like they won't talk to you, like they only do SegWit transactions. Yeah, but there's always the risk of splitting the network more or less willingly. Of course, yeah, and that's where the political power comes in for when you can threaten to split the network. That is a cost for everyone, and so then they have to represent your interests a little bit. So there's like a, it's a, there's like this game theory that actually like works out to represent minority interests if, you know. Um, because of this network split. I mean, I think in the case of Bitcoin, it would be pretty hard to get everyone to move to a new chain. Everyone is stubborn and basically 
decides to run the kind of code which also allows Satoshi Nakamoto to claim his coins if he ever comes back. So if we were to hard fork, maybe that we can move the UTXO set, but there, there would be changes that can drastically modify some aspects. Yeah, look, <clears throat> I mean, I agree it would be hard given like Bitcoin governance today, but you know, where there's a will, there's a way, and today there's no will, but one day maybe there will be, and it might be hard to imagine what would lead to that will being there, but uh, it's technically possible. There's no like technical reason why. Uh, and so, you know, it's like, in my opinion, like today, okay, it's legally impossible to like, you know, like force Bitcoiners to change it to 22 million Bitcoins. And I think like probably that's going to be like legally impossible forever, but that doesn't mean that there's not going to be will from within the Bitcoin community and from within like, you know, like the Bitcoin ecosystem. Um, it's just, it's just hard to imagine. And, you know, Will, it's hard also in general to like muster and maintain through adversity and all the things you have to end up doing. Um, but just because it's hard doesn't mean that it's impossible and doesn't mean that like that possibility should be kind of, um, you know, decided away a long time ago in the manner in which, you know, people would like to believe. I think I've had this conversation with Peter Todd last year or something. And he mentioned that he believes that we should hard fork for the simple reason that we need to add tail inflation. And he, I think, is in a minority from this point of view. He considers that there should be cool. greater block rewards for a longer time to incentivize growth. Sweet. Well, you know, it's, it's nice to hear. Uh, I like to hear heresy. I like to hear people deviate from the party line. It's nice. Plus, he also believes that eventually everything will fail including Bitcoin and everything else, but he believes that the dollar will fail first. Yeah, I mean, um, I think that's reasonable and I'm not so afraid of failure. I mean, I think like because of the nature of like these institutions, like failure modes have recovery. And so it's fine. I mean, it's fine if they fail. I mean, I mean, it's fine if like cryptocurrencies and blockchains fail. I mean, I don't know about the U.S. dollar. Like, that's like a little bit less fine. And I mean, when I say fail, I mean just in the technical sense. I don't mean like, uh, and like you know, like in the sense of like uh, the projects failing on like a deep, deep level. Although I guess that's also interesting. Um. Voltoro, and that's V-A-U-L-T, like a gold volt, and O-R-O, -O, Oro which is Spanish for gold, is a gold and Bitcoin exchange, which offers instant swaps between hard money to over 31,000 customers from more than 95 countries. Voltoro has offered Swiss privacy and security since 2015. Furthermore, the gold you purchase is your legal property, secured in your name, so even if something happens to Voltoro, even liquidators could not touch your gold. If you want to become the custodian of your own gold bars, you can request to have them delivered to you or simply trade them back to Bitcoin on the dip. Register for free in only 30 seconds and start trading only with hard money. Please keep in mind that all trading involves risks. This is not financial advice and you're responsible for your own decisions. 
When you are using Wasabi Wallet, your internet connection gets routed through the Tor network by default. This means that you get better privacy while using Bitcoin. Download it today at wasabiwallet.io I think we got to the point where I can ask you something which comes in between the dollar and this whole blockchain space. So what's your take on central bank digital currencies? Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting kind of space that seems to have been accelerated by the rise of cryptocurrencies. And the, my concern is that the uh, bar for privacy is much lower because of the low bar for privacy that cryptocurrencies set. And so basically because cryptocurrencies are like public and accountable for the most part, um, they are setting up CBDCs for a much lower bar for consumer privacy protection than consumers are used to actually today or that people in the public or the financial institutions etc are used to today and so i think that like because cbdc's are competing against blockchain there's like really serious private privacy concerns in cbdc's and um so i'm like concerned that basically it's going to be like you know like uh like kind of really bad privacy for everyone using them um just basically because of the mistakes that we're making in the crypto space so i'm worried about like the competition between crypto and CBDCs and then the ways in which crypto is letting CBDCs meet a lower bar than otherwise they would have to if they were being developed without the presence of crypto. That's harsh, um, and I like it. <laughs> like, you basically blamed everyone crypto, for the yeah. fact that they set the privacy bar so low that now governments can step in and create something centralized which has the exact same features and is going to look identical to people who got used to using public transactions that are broadcast mm -hmm. and can be seen by anyone around the world. And essentially, they're going to use the same model, but from a centralized point of view, and they're going to know who everyone is. And most people will not even care because they do it in the name of technological innovation or something, which is one mm -hmm. of the reasons yeah, why I use cash. Yeah, that's nice. Yeah, the cash is king still, um, and I think, but but and I think and I think that's and I think that's right. I mean, you know, we 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 do deserve blame for that, and I think that like you know, um, the risks and opportunities um, are are su are super real, basically because it's a lot of new turf that that is kind of created in like cyberspace, let's say, um, and there's going to be kind of like aggressive conflict over it and it's like also like a very much like legal and political thing because like you know many different nations are starting to do these things and they're going to roll them out and then they're going to be like trading against each other interoperability interopping you know people are going to have basically complicated applications that end them end up with them in a bunch of legal relationships they don't really expect to be in um and so I, 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 or you know and like that also could be used to by like sophisticated national actors to try to push their political agenda on everyone across the world, um, and so you know I think um, you know there's, it's like basically a, like a really high risk area with a lot of um, a lot of openings for people to do power grabs, money grabs, and it's um, also a place where people are trying to move fast. And so, like, all these things together, you know, make me feel like, oh, it's like we're in for some inevitable disasters. That's gloomy, and I like it. But hear my hot take, okay? So, 
I'm kind of heretic, kind of a heretic in my bubble, where I'm very much against the fact that we grew so fast with Bitcoin and adoption that right now we have billionaires who are playing basically pump and dump games. And you see Elon Musk just tweeting about something, starting to accept Bitcoin for Tesla cars. And two weeks later, he decides that he has changed his mind and he plummets the price by 20% or something. That's just terrible. We ended up worshipping all of these people way too soon and they have huge followings they have a huge influence they're gonna bring a lot of regulators and we're gonna have to deal with them even after these billionaires just decide to leave and they lose interest and i don't know where it goes from here like you have supposedly the world's wealthiest man and then there's michael saylor who play this kind of pump and dump game on Twitter. And where does it go from here? Like, it feels like what's next for the next bull cycle, right? Is there going to be a lot of retail adoption? Is there going to be like somebody from a big bank who finally accepts it? Like, it blows my mind thinking that we have gotten to some sort of peak in terms of how far we can go. You know, I mean, uh, I, 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 I'm, I'm a little more optimistic in some ways. I mean, there's still so much room to maneuver. And, you know, these people who you're talking about, like, don't have almost any understanding of, like, the basic institutions and facts on the ground of, like, anything that's happening in this space. Like, you, when you have, like, you know, people with a lot of money and very little information trying to, like, make a splash in the crypto world, I mean, basically it... It, the reason why some of those players end up making a bigger impact is because of their attention, as you kind of say, like their like implicit like worship by like the like by the meme, uh, by like the meme religion, uh, and 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 you know I think that's uh, that's actually like more where they're getting influenced than their money, um, and and like just from being like a focal point for attention for these memers who are engaged in this like crazy kind of decentralized. Um, trading scheme, um, and and so you know uh, because of the nature of crypto, because of the nature of like the information age more generally, like it's not it's not really the money that's that, that's creating this kind of like problem as much as like the uh, it's like a perception and memes and like this question of like for example this question of Elon Musk's environmental environmentalist credentials. Right. I mean, and he when he did these Bitcoin things, he looked bad to a lot of his stakeholders. And so he had to, like, correct for them. And he's basically in this po- in this position of, like, trying to be cool for people on different sides of a political kind of uh, struggle. And he's got he's trying to look good for both sides. And then he looks bad for both. And it's not really, like, tactical for him. But. Um, you know, like to understand this kind of stuff, you know, you have to see kind of like who he's representing and who he's trying to, who he is, like, so to speak. And and I think like for a lot of people, um, they're just kind of like, trying to look for um, anything that will make the number go up. And so like they'll like, they will kind of like blow their load at every opportunity. And, you know, it will look bad when... They ha- uh, when it like wasn't so you know after all, but 
Um, but that's just kind of normal in our like hyper conflicted marketplace where people are just like so obsessed with making money for the most part or most people that like I'm not sure if it's most I don't know it's hard to measure but um, certainly there's a there's I think if we weren't so conflicted we wouldn't have jumped on the Elon train because like it was like for the pump and then like when it didn't work out people are mad at Elon and and, it, and it's like you know everyone's kind of to blame it like just looks bad on everyone um, no offense sorry guys yeah I hope that Michael Saylor is gonna end up exactly the same so we learn our lesson you mean you think he looks good right now I mean I don't know dude are you kidding me I don't know I've seen I've seen some like great little gif of him saying crazy shit <laughs> I know but he has his worshippers like I wrote an article which explained how he can turn into a bad actor and people just started attacking me and were like, give him the benefit of the doubt. Like he hasn't done anything wrong. But at the same time, he's supporting that Mara Marathon or something mining pool, which until a week ago or something was only mining OFAC compliant blocks, whatever that means. So amazing, amazing, amazing. Basically, it was a mining tool. You mean a week ago? Wait a second. A week ago, they started mining just like any transactions? So I'm not sure about the relation between Michael Saylor and Marathon, which is an, a mining pool from the United States. But he did hype them a couple of times. And Marathon basically decided to not accept transactions that come from blacklisted addresses by Chainalysis. So it means that somebody from Iran, for example just because Iran is in a financial embargo, is not going to have his transactions included in a block that gets mm -hmm. mined by Marathon. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So they yeah. ran on this hypothesis of potentially censoring transactions that they don't like until people started spamming them with <laughs> coin join transactions, basically, that were tainted. So they... I think they went back on their previous statements and right now they claim to be mining gold blocks. They're not big enough, by the way, so it's not like they hold yeah. more than 2 or 3% of the hash rate. Yeah, but it's still important uh, as like a legal, like from a legal perspective, um, you know, like this issue of like, you know, sanctions and cryptocurrency is a major one and it's like going to be a major uh, grounds for dispute uh, going forward and you know, one of the outcomes is very much this one, like OFAC complying mining pools. Like that's like one of the outcomes. Um, and so it's like, you know, um, not that surprising to see. And, uh, you know, definitely like interesting and deep political ground there. It's fertile, fertile ground for, uh, for conflict, really. It's also funny because China has never tried to do anything like this. And you, they are basically the country that conducted a genocide against the Uyghurs. How do you pronounce that? Uyghurs? Uyghurs, yeah. The Muslim population, that's a minority in China. So they are terrible at human rights, but somehow they treated Bitcoin a lot better than the United States is. Yeah, well, I mean, the United States is in a hegemonic position in the global financial system that, like, China isn't. And so, you know, China and, like, their position vis-a-vis -vis the, like, multilateral financial sanctions regime is very different. I mean, and, like, but, like, you know, um, you, you should assume that, like, uh, 
everyone in the world kind of, or all of the like major political powers in the world kind of, you know, either are happy for or are upset with this multilateral financial sanctions regime. And basically it's like a large political thing because it's one of the main mechanisms by which like the rule of law happens globally through like, you know, um, like basically um, the sanctions regime. Um, and, and so like, you know, it's like a, it's like a very deep, delicate, uh, global political issue. And that you're, so you're basically going to find like, you know, different people on, on different sides and, and basically, um, uh, it's, 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 it's not so much, you know, uh, I, I don't think it so much shows like there are like philosophy as much as there are like political alignment. Also, sometimes I think that in the United States, what the federal government cannot achieve is being achieved by third party corporations, basically. So if they want to regulate Bitcoin, if the federal government steps in, they're going to look like the bad guys. But if they basically they have a lot of inflation, which goes into Wall Street and the stock market. And you're going to have companies like MicroStrategy, which buys large positions in Bitcoin. And these coins are going to be held in custody of a corporation. And they're going to be passed on only through contracts. And it's not like they will ever be anonymous. So they're destroying the fungibility of the currency by acquiring chunks of this currency, which doesn't have proper privacy yet. So essentially, by acquiring large positions, it means that the rest of the coins have a lower amount of plausible deniability. So it will be easier to track and figure out who is behind every transaction, just because there is a lower amount of the supply that's out there in the wild. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I mean, as the like like kind of distributed cornering of the Bitcoin market continues, I mean, that's going to continue to be the case. And it's going to get worse and worse. And I mean, I think people should already assume that all their Bitcoin transactions are not private unless they are like absolutely lead hackers then who like really know that they're private. Like I think most people, almost everyone is unable to make a private Bitcoin transaction. And then like they, and they should just know that and that should be like on the label, so to speak. Um, but, also, but furthermore, you know, in this discussion about like, you know, um, Governance, like basically like blockchain governance and national interests in blockchain governance, uh, absolutely people will uh, basically not be, you know, formally the state while still being politically aligned with the state. I mean, it's like very normal um, for, you know, the like organization of society to kind of like, you know, not have like a sharp line at the, at the where the state is defined and then like, there's like, and then like corporations are like outside the state and very much like, you know, you know, the law is like much more complicated than that. And, and, and there, it, you know, just because like, you're not going to have someone who is like, 
formally acting on behalf of the state doesn't mean that they're not aligned with national interests and aren't pushing national agenda or even like an international agenda uh, that are there is like their political alignment. And so, you know, um, basically what I like to do is to like do analysis and to see like, okay, what are the postures that are people that people are taking, you know, like who are they aligned with? And then like, when someone has a posture that's like basically um, suspends judgment and delegates their like legal responsibility to someone else, it's very clear, you know, that they're like not kind of independent. Um, and, 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 you know, the most common way that this happens is basically what people will be like, um, they, 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 they'll, they'll, they'll use this kind of brain dead legal language instead of this legal language that requires that they exercise judgment and that they make these calls. Uh, and, and so basically in, in those cases, you can kind of like, you can kind of tell, you know, their alignments pretty, pretty easily based on like basically national lines or um, sometimes, you know, um, they'll be like international corporate lines or something like this. Um, you know, it's, it's important to see basically and to keep track of the different stakeholders and like what are their political alignments and like, you know, who is nationalist, who is like, you know, pure crypto person, who is like, you know, these different kind of political identities or political, um, let's call them valences or I don't really know what the best word is. Yeah, that's fine. And I just realized that both of us agreed up to this point that privacy is necessary in the space and it needs to be normalized for the simple reason that people need it and also that governments should set the bar a lot higher when they try to design some of their own central banking mechanisms. Um, I mean, yeah, although within legal limits, like I don't really believe in a kind of thing where like it should be possible for people to have like arbitrary privacy at any time or any purpose. Like I, I kind of think like, you know, there's always going to be legal limits to privacy and it's important kind of that we understand that like um, the privacy isn't just a matter of tech, it's also a matter of law. You know, it's not just that like it should be, it shouldn't be possible to like scrape all this data and like look at it like just in public. It should be understood that like it's unlawful as a norm and then you have to have an exceptional circumstance to, for that to be like something that's not subject to dispute by your peers and people who are around you. Um, and so and so I think that there's like this like legal side to the privacy discussion that kind of like really helps I think make everyone at least in the in, uh, you know I mean it depends on who but it, 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 can, it can basically help people become much more secure with the whole end-to-end -end encryption thing. You know, I'm not talking about backdoors, but I'm just thinking, you know, and I'm just saying there are uh, legal limits to espionage and, 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 and you don't necessarily um, need to have as strong of a technical fort when the law prohibits certain amounts of spying or certain, going to certain lengths to spy or, um, you know, like for example, there's like looking at the blockchain and there's monitoring the peer to peer network. There's compromising your nodes. There's like all sorts of different like steps you can take. And then like, and, and, and the bar at which the level of surveillance becomes like unlawful for who under what circumstance is, you know, something that's constantly being kind of renegotiated in society. And, 
Uh, it's important that people understand that and like participate in that kind of legal political arena as much as building tools that will preserve their privacy because, you know, um, both of these sides of the equation are important because basically the tech by itself, A, can't do it because of like tech limitations and B, uh, if it if you can do it, then you really need to have some good answers to some tef- tough tech law problems about like why this won't, for example, create, um, you know, this kind of these kinds of outcomes where law enforcement can't do their jobs and stuff like this. And then and 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 and, and I think there are good answers there. To be clear, like I think infiltration will always work. You know, like surveillance without infiltration. Like maybe won't, but like infiltration is like a fundamental thing that will always work. And so uh, you know, I, I I think that like for any like the like organization of a certain size, like this technology just like can't really help them fundamentally. And so I think there's like legal arguments to be made. I mean, that's just like not even scratching the surface. Um, but if you if you're gonna be like a radical kind of like we need to use the tech to make this like perfectly private for everyone, um, then you have like a higher legal burden than if you say, look, we're gonna make the tech better all the time and we're going to be mindful that like you know it's basically unlawful to look unless you have some unless you're like like going after some criminals or terrorists or something yeah i'm pretty sure that this is kind of a double-edged sword as bitcoin would not have succeeded unless it had this public blockchain which could be observed by everyone i suppose the only reason why Governments with very strong military powers and a lot of propaganda power, the only reason why they accepted that Bitcoin can coexist with the dollar and the rest of the fiat currencies is that it can be tracked and it can be observed in a very transparent way, which has some pseudonymity, but at the same time can have lots of tools that you mentioned. And, you know, we should assume at this point that every commercial processor or computer that we buy is backdoored by the NSA. And I don't think there's any device. Maybe I heard something about the risk five or something that it may not be backdoored, but I'm not sure about anything anymore. So if they want to get access into somebody's device, then they can. But I just wanted to ask you if you have any privacy tools that you like and usually recommend people to use. I mean, like VPN, Tor, I mean, just like the basics, like I don't have anything in particular. Um, although I would say, you know, um, uh, I w- about your previous point, I think, I think it's like true that Bitcoin being public makes it less threatening. And I think, but I also think that like, even if it wasn't public, you know, like if you look at Zcash, for example, Zcash is like, you know, you can't get the same information from the blockchain. But if you monitor the network, if you compromise people's devices, if you, you know, the, like people can produce proofs, which means there is evidence, you know. Um, and so it's not like it's not like the law won't work if there if it can't get information from the blockchain. So like I think you know it is overblown. It is a little overblown to say that like oh if there wasn't all this information, then like uh, cryptocurrency would be banned. Uh, I just think it would be like a slightly different equilibrium in terms of the amount of work required to get the information. And sure, that can make huge qualitative changes. Uh, but like, you know, I do believe that like the law would work just fine if Bitcoin was private. Like, I don't have that insecurity. 
I'm pretty sure that if there was a hard fork like we discussed, I would be in favor of adding more privacy by any means. Like, I suppose that there are lots of interesting experiments from confidential transactions to ring signatures and ZK, zero proof, zero knowledge proofs. So mm -hmm. there is a lot of stuff that has been done and experimented with. And if it was to get added into Bitcoin, I would be in favor of it because that's how you make a currency fungible. And if you want to track the transactions, you can track the devices and you can find other means to surveil if you're a government. Otherwise, I don't think that everyone should be allowed to see everyone else's transactions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I totally, I totally think so. And I think, you know, um, there's really like lots of deep legal reasons why it's bad for people to be able to monitor each other's transactions. Like imagine, you know, like your political opponents monitoring like, like the books you buy, the, the, the places you go, like, you know, like just like it can be, it can start to become like, you know, people can start to build like a really good profile of you, which they, you know, can kind of already do, but like in like, you know, with like contracts with corporations, kind of not like anyone in the public. And so, you know, there's like a chance that like, you know, in terms of like people's privacy and being tracked by others, like, you know, that like cryptocurrency and then therefore the influence that cryptocurrency has on these competing systems like CBDC will be, you know, like a disaster for for people and businesses, et cetera. Uh, and so I think, you know, like the privacy thing is huge. I think it's a great one for sure. Sometimes I talk with Bitcoiners who most likely will roast me for even doing this interview in the first place, but I don't care. This is useful for a lot of people and this is interesting. But they claim that the only enemy around here, I mean, everywhere around the world, is central banking. And the only purpose of Bitcoin is to defeat central banking, not to become private. So they don't mind that their transactions are going to be observed and stored in somebody's database in regards to, I don't know, you can do personal profiling. If you have the XPubs of every person on the Bitcoin network, you can do personal profiling and see with whom they're transacting and make all of these connections that I'm pretty sure that Chainalysis is making at a pretty advanced level. I'm not sure how far they got, but I'm pretty sure that they are pretty good at it. And Especially if you bought your coins from an exchange, and most exchanges tend to KYC you. It's do they work with chain analysis in general? Hmm? Do exchanges work with chain analysis to provide this data? Most of the times, yes. Especially if they're from the United States. I'm not sure if you were around to see the news about Coinbase a couple of years ago when they hired hacking team, essentially a team that was best known for catching freedom fighters around the world and handing them to their authoritarian governments. And they hired them to become a new team inside of Coinbase that's called Neutrino. Mm -hmm. So they did that. Yeah. I'm and they want to track every transaction that goes out of their exchange so they know where the money goes, which is a lot worse than banks. Mm -hmm. I don't think the bank cares where you send your money after sure. you withdraw it from the ATM. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think the like, one reason why crypto is like being subject to this like higher level of scrutiny than like normal bank transactions is because of like the political agenda that you just mentioned around like, 
you know, central banks and like global finance and, and like, you know, like the nature of money and all this kind of, you know, super high stakes political um, like agenda, basically. Yeah, I'm pretty skeptical about the success of Bitcoin without privacy. That's why I prefer nowadays the Lightning Network, not just because it's fast, but because it's a lot more private. And if a lot more people transacted using this more private second layer, I think we would be in a better place. But if they transacted in a non-custodial way, because it's easy to download a wallet and use some sort of custodian service, but all of your transaction data is going to be stored by some third party, which is unfortunate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean... um any any privacy improvement is something we should take, but um, you know, I don't think Lightning is like exactly a privacy solution, as you kind of say. But you know, I think um, this, you know, the space is still very young, and everything is still pretty primitive, and and I I think there's like lots of room to maneuver and stuff, and I don't think like you know, we should accept or the Bitcoiners should accept this idea that like we're not going to change the protocol to improve it in many ways, including privacy but uh, but i do see you know i mean i see like kind of what's happening and i understand that that's hard but um um you know eventually you can imagine 20 years 30 years like we're gonna have much more tried and tested privacy solutions etc uh and it might be a conservative thing at that time for bitcoin to adopt some of this stuff and so like i wouldn't if i was bitcoin i wouldn't you know paint myself into a corner where i can't install this stuff um, but I also think it's like like legally impossible to paint yourself in that corner. I think like ultimately you can always get out. It's just hard or can be hard to like, you know, go back on the whole minimization immutability thing in order to do, um, you know, privacy upgrades or whatever. I think that setting this 20, 30 year time framework is a lot more reasonable than being, I don't know, a bit urgent about it and saying we need to do this now or else it's going to end. Like there's so much that we don't know at this point. We mm. are still very early. Yeah, it's still very early. It's still very early basically like and, and there's lots of ways that you can kind of tell but basically like like uh, the easiest way for me to tell that it's super early is basically to think about you know what is the fastest and soonest that like this whole thing can wind down. Like imagine if like cryptocurrency got canceled like like how would that like play out it's still many years before it plays out and so like even in like the worst case where like cryptocurrency gets canceled today you know like g7 comes out with like a really aggressive international ban you know or something and then like and then like also like everyone and it's kind of like turns against it politically or whatever like you could imagine you know, even in the worst case it's going to take a long time for crypto to like wind down and stuff, and so like it, even in the worst case, we it's it's we still have many years to go, and I think um, it's very unclear how this is going to happen. Basically, because normally when there's highly contested land, um, people aren't going to suddenly agree that like okay, we don't want to contest this land. We're gonna just like make it go away and like try to act as if like it never existed. So like basically, you know, with enough will, like you can close any Pandora's box. But like, it, the, the, like the dynamics right now isn't like that. This box is going to be closed anytime soon. And then if if 
you know, um, if it isn't closed anytime soon, then like, yeah, there's definitely 20 years left, 30 years more. Um, just because of like the nature of the thing, it's just like uh, really, really hard um, to go away. And also because of the nature of the of the of the arms race and uh, land grab that's kind of happening right now. Hey, psst. hey, what's your plan for the next Bitcoin top? Unless you need the money to purchase something, you probably should not touch infinitely inflationary fiat. Check out Voltoro and figure out to which extent hard money like gold and silver can help you preserve your purchasing power. You will be able to get back into Bitcoin as soon as the price hits a new bottom and you will not be subjected to the arbitrary inflation-driven volatility of fiat or fiat-backed coins. Obviously, this is not financial advice and you should understand that all trading involves risks. Wasabi Wallet connects to your full Bitcoin node and if you're not running one, it downloads block filters anonymously via Tor. In either case, you're getting excellent privacy. Download the software today at wasabiwallet.io I think also from the point of view of network incentives, it's going to be very interesting to see how it plays out in seven years when we're going to have that having which essentially will give a smaller block reward than the fees so it's going to be a constant need there's going to be a constant need for the blocks to get full in order for the miners to be profitable yeah you know um don't worry if if it fails a lot it'll just get hard forked <laughs> yeah Thanks for, you know, playing the devil's advocate or something. <laughs> I hope it doesn't. I hope everything works out as planned and the demand is going to increase to support this type of system where you don't have block rewards that are big enough and you have transaction fees which subsidize the entire system. I, I suppose that's the biggest bet that this design has made especially Satoshi Nakamoto who mentioned in the white paper that after I, <laughs> I mean I I think I would say it's like the biggest area where it's clear that there's a big risk in the design. I mean this is like a big this is like the one it's not I mean I wouldn't say it's the biggest bet it's the riskiest bet on the like one of the riskiest bets like at least in the game theory. I think there were people back in 2012 or when was it that there was the first having 2013 Anyway, there were people during the first halving that were skeptical about the sustainability of going from 50 mm -hmm. bitcoins per block to 25. And there seemed to be a trend in this regard. Now we're at 6.25. Gonna be at 3.125 in three years. So it's gonna be interesting to see how this plays out. Because right now you can see blocks where the block reward is equal with the fees and it's only gonna get worse in terms of block reward and hopefully better in terms of fees let's see how that plays out mm -hmm. yeah um i mean in terms of like the game theory um there's like this question of 
you know, is it going to be the miners' incentives to try to game by orphaning each other's blocks in order to take their fees? And and I think you know, there's like a kind of question about what game are they playing, you know? Uh, and you know, if they're playing this like adversarial between the miners' game, I could see I could see you know these kind of like adversarial strategies happening. But if they're playing the like let's pump Bitcoin game. It's harder to see, you know. I think playing the less pump Bitcoin game is a lot more profitable. But we shall see how it turns out because we haven't gotten to the point where miners can get desperate. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I kind of want to see everything. So, like, it'd be great if, like, it all happens. <laughs> yeah, it would be great if it doesn't happen, if you ask me. But we're going <laughs> to learn precious lessons if it does. I was about to ask you. Well, you know. Go on. Sorry. It, it would be, it would, for me, like, you know, any hard fork in Bitcoin is great because, like, I'm just not into the whole soft fork model. And so, like, you know, I'd love, I'd just love to see that just because of the, just because of, like, my stance on the hard forks versus soft forks models. Okay. I was about to ask you about Zcash because you have mentioned it. And it's interesting to see how Zuko, who is the creator of Zcash and Zuko's Trilemma and lots of other interesting cypherpunk mm -hmm. stuff, went from possibly one of the biggest advocates in the early days. I think a couple of days after Bitcoin got launched, he wrote one of the first blog posts to tell people to get into Bitcoin because it's like a more complete version of Chami and Ecash, which has fig figured out more of the issues that Chom Cash had, except for privacy. And he ended up creating a privacy coin specifically because he was concerned about the privacy of Bitcoin. And now he's bragging about how Zcash is compliant with Chainalysis. And it makes you wonder what went wrong there. Like, Yeah, I mean, um, in my opinion, what went wrong basically is that he decided to have a, a legal strategy of trying to make um, U.S. stakeholders super happy and basically to be based in the U.S. and to be basically a U.S. company and, like, be politically, basically, like, politically and legally, like, uh, I want to say compliant in the U.S. I mean, that's literally probably how he thinks about it. I'm not, I'm not sure if he thinks in compliance terms, but he might literally just be thinking in terms of compliance. And so, and so I think, like, that, like, that, like, legally, politically was an unnecessarily conservative move that has like pay, pay you know kind of uh alienated or isolated um the project from maybe some of its cypherpunk uh would be supporters um and i think that it's unfortunate and it wasn't necessary and i think that like zuko could have maintained a much more activist posture um and you know i um you know hope that like zcash moves out of the us sorry to say <laughs> well they should and speaking of the us i just want to ask you this what's your take on ripple because i don't think they have done anything interesting in many years but they play the same us based card and they just try to FUD whenever they can, both the press and 
legislators by telling them, you know, Bitcoin is controlled by China. We are an American company. We want the future of money to be based in the USA. Seems to work out for them sometimes. They pump the price. They convince some institutional investors to buy some of their XRP coins. But everything about their behavior and everything about their design is highly centralized and, if you ask me, unethical. What's your take on this? Well, I mean, um, uh, I, I would say, I mean, like, like, okay, you know, in uh, as far as repose a scam, like, you're absolutely right. And, um, you know, it's a matter of time until, like, people kind of, like, really see, I, I guess. I mean, I don't know. They're involved in legal proceedings. I'm not sure if those are done. I'm not sure, like, what will come out when and stuff. But, like, you know, like... Definitely, you know, I've seen enough sketchy advertisements for Ripple. I've seen enough people like buy Ripple on basically like sketchy pretenses and stuff that like, you know, I tend to share your feelings. But I also say like this, uh, I don't pay any attention to Ripple. Like it has never been on my radar ever. It's like not on my radar. Well, I'm happy that we agree on something like there's nothing interesting that they have done except for a lot of marketing. And they got so rich in 2017 with that pump that I suppose right now they can afford to buy politicians. They even had Bill Clinton invited at one of their events as a keynote speaker. So it just shows that they can buy political favors or favoritism, whatever you want to call it. And they're not going away too soon. Like, as long as they still have money to burn, they will still be relevant on the scene, which is unfortunate. I think there are lots of interesting projects going on. By the way, what's your take on the Mimble Wimble stuff? <clears throat> well, I mean, I, I didn't follow too closely, but there was apparently some vulnerability that was discovered. And I don't know if they ever got over that. Uh, I, I don't really know. Uh, but I, I mean... When I was following back before, you know, like a while ago, uh, it seemed very exciting. But but, but I, I, I'm not a cryptographer. Like, I don't evaluate cryptography. So I can't really say. You know, when Grin got launched, it kind of made me happy because it had that kind of pure pseudonymous launch. There was this guy who published a research paper and then people, the community just took it and created an implementation on it. Actually, two of them. One of one of them is corporate and the other one is more cypherpunk. And I was just happy to see that this is still happening, you know? And this is not like a cheap shot at Ethereum because it raised VC money, but that has become the standard around here. Did not raise VC money. I mean, you had a pre-mine and stuff like that. Well, there was like a pre-sale and... Um, but there wasn't, as far as I know, venture capital involved. Okay, then let's get to the part about Sabo's Law, because I hyped it, and we haven't really discussed it. You wrote, sure, like, to. two or three articles on the topic. They were pretty controversial. At some point, Bitcoin Airlog, John Carvalho, wanted to debate you, and I was trying very hard to moderate the debate, and it was not going to happen. And he, I, I don't know why that fell out at some point, but I suppose that the time to discuss that is a lot better now because it's not, 
such a pressing issue right now, so we can reflect on it from a more objective point of view? Um, I don't know. I mean, I don't remember why it fell through. I'm generally quite bad at getting back to people. Um, and so, like, it could have easily been me. Um, but, um, you know, so, 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 so Nick Zabo uh, is this early cypherpunk with legal training who is responsible for a lot of the norms around immutability, blockchain governance, minimization, and... Um, like the idea that we shouldn't dispute the code because like that's a better legal way for us to organize than to like rely on like these legal and political forms that are basically corruptible. It's kind of like the the theory basically. Uh, I mean, I'm sure everyone's heard it. I mean, there's like the the blo blockchain immutability. Like we shouldn't change the code because then we'll need to like be vulnerable basically. Um, and, 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 you know, he has like a lot of different kinds of blogs that you can read and stuff. And, you know, I don't recommend looking at his Twitter feed, but like, you, you maybe look at some of his blogs that are like historically important for setting up the crypto law regime that we have today in Bitcoin and Ethereum and in a lot of spaces in crypto. Um, where basically we, you know, the concepts of immutability, the idea that like we shouldn't dispute protocols, um, uh, the the idea that like um, it's somehow like illegal or like a force of nature or like a kind of like outside of um, legal recourse or legal action, you know, um, the idea is that we should like minimize governance, minimize politics, minimize law in crypto. Um, this is, you know, I'm, I'm sure Nick isn't the only person who's responsible for this, but like historically it's very clear that he's responsible for it and like he doesn't deny being responsible for it. And, um, you know, I think he is like, and, you know, in some way should be proud of his work because he did such a tremendous impact. But, you know, I think that it was basically deeply misguided and deeply paranoid and basically deeply insecure in as a legal posture because um, basically you know when you insist that like the software can't be disputed you look like a maniac when you try to put a when you say like we should put a straitjacket on governance so that you can trust us it doesn't seem like you're particularly trustworthy when you like act like no one can be trusted like we have to do everything with software because no one can be trusted. You know, you don't come off like you're particularly trustworthy, and your institutions come off as either or probably both aggressive and insecure because you're taking this hard line posture where you like refuse to change the code no matter what happens. And so, you know, and the other thing about this is basically the straitjacket basically is tries to like minimize. Governance, and so it's like an extreme. It's a very extreme norm that basically tries to do as much as possible to get rid of other norms or get rid of other, uh, you know, um, governance modes or legal modes. And so, you know, to me, like this whole immutability, code is law, you know, all of basically Nick Zabo's legal thought, everything that's associated with it, like the whole legal matrix that Nick Zabo created. And that, like, he is associated with and that he protects um, is, like, in my mind, 
you know, deeply problematic and, like, has no place on the earth, like, in the long term, you know? Because, like, software isn't above dispute. And it shouldn't be above dispute, and we shouldn't treat it as if it's above dispute. And, like, to try to deal with disputes by making software above disputes is extremely immature. And it's not really, like, a sustainable, practical, secure blah, 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 you name it, alternative to exercising judgment in law and governance uh, by uh, everyone in, 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 you know, that's participating in governance. Right, so this is your criticism of Sabo's law. But what is your mm-hmm. alternative to it? What do you propose? Yeah, so, so, so basically, um, you know, I... I, I The first thing I I like to talk about is um, post-structuralism and the idea that, like, you know, legal systems uh, are are not really what the law is made of. And the idea that, like, systems, you know, the law is much more complex than systems. And so the the first thing I I do is, like, make it really clear that we're we're never going to have a system that governs the blockchain or that is, like, the crypto law system. And, like, you know, the idea of, like, having this system that says, like, do nothing – it's like also like a system that like kind of commits the same foul of trying to reduce law and governance into something that's simpler than it is. And so I would never and I will never pr- propose a system and I would never and I will never like support a system as being uh, this kind of solution to governance. Uh, I don't think that's like a real thing. And if anyone, anyone who tries to do that is basically like not really doing what they say they're doing and are kind of like engaging in this fault called structuralism of like imagining that these things are like systems. And so then after I say that, basically the next thing I like to say is um, all of these things that were t- that we talked about in blockchain governance are subject to dispute and are subject to the rule of law and are subject to conflict. But there is no, you know, like body politic type state that can just say as a matter of like its rules, like what, how that conflict plays out. Because there is no, you know, like global state or global or like crypto law state that could like make these dictates. And so instead, what we need to do is to have disputes about all of these different topics. And, and, and then, and then to develop a culture of having disputes responsibly, you know, with good judgment, with understanding of about how the disputes play out in their full life cycle and how, you know, including also preventing them. Um, rather than, you know, only trying to, rather than like just creating disputes and managing ones, you know, we also need to like avoid disputes. Um, and so basically the way that I think about it is in terms of the basics of law and governance and applying basically like the basics of law and governance in this kind of setting where we don't have state control. Um and and so you know it's really interesting uh, because like today a lot of people have this notions of of law and governance and politics that are like dominated by state and like theories of state and theories of law as rules of state. But there's a lot of law out there that doesn't fit into that mold. And uh, there's a tremendous actually amount of legal culture that like we bring to bear when we have disputes. And um, and I think when we have global disputes. And the, with these in these systems and the way that we're going to have, uh, you know, we're going to have a, a lot of opportunity to bring together lots of different legal culture in order to deal with the conflicts that we have. And, um, you know, 
I don't think that's going to result in the creation of like some corporation that controls the blockchain or some, you know, like pseudo government that controls the blockchain. Like I really think we can securely have conflict over these all these issues without having to say, nope, Satoshi decided or no, it was already decided and like we can no longer dispute these things. Um, you know, I really believe that we can have conflict in a secure way. Okay. Personally, I tend to prefer... So I come from this... How should I put it? From this Republican point of view where you have rules and you organize the entire society or system or network or everything else around these rules as opposed to the decisions that people make as long as the rules have been agreed on from the very beginning by all participants. And when I think of Bitcoin, whenever somebody decides to join the network, they agree to the basic consensus rules about validation, about the supply, about the creation of the supply, and about the nature of the transactions. I suppose that there's a lot that can be changed. And for example, right now they're working on implementing Schnorr signatures, which are more efficient. And I don't think that's contentious if it's objectively a better system than we should try to adopt it to the extent that we can. But I don't think, so let me explain to you my point of view. If you make a change and you turn it into a norm that you make changes whenever you have conflicts, you give in to, you create a precedent. So you can get pressured. Let's say that you can get kidnapped and somebody's going to tell you to convince everyone else to make a change. If the norm is to make changes, then bad actors can leverage that against you. So how can you mitigate this situation? Yeah, I mean, um, kind of this is what legal security is all about. You want to make sure that, like, you know, you're safe. You're not extorted. You're not getting kidnapped. You know, you have, like, legal protections, which means, like, you know, like everything from security to lawyers and all sorts of stuff. And so, and so I think, like, there's, like, there is this, like, you know, logistics to some extent of like keeping keeping the operations of people who are involved in blockchain governance safe safe but i don't think um I, I i don't i don't i don't really think it's as simple as oh you create a precedent or like someone has control or like you know uh, because if we have this kind of constant specter of imminent conflict you know you can't just like force something through because it's not like we all agree to delegate our judgment to the system and when the system says, okay, we just do it. We have to instead like, you know, like have scrutiny constantly over all these things. And so like when someone's under duress, like that's not going to be something that people aren't going to notice if they're being asked to do something weird. Uh, and, 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 you know, basically um, there's a lot of room in the law to figure out how to organize blockchain governance or to organize uh, uh, the way we have conflict around blockchain governance in order to make sure that, you know, um, we don't have this kind of uh, system that just is like super compromising, you know, like let's say, for example, Bitcoin, if we assume that Bitcoin is committed to this anti-central banking mandate uh, politically, then like, you know, there's like, you know, it's very hard for like a pro-central banking change to be pushed through, you know, um, because basically 
it's not the ethos of Bitcoin. And and I, and I think that like the you know the people's expectations when they come to use a system or when they come to use um, an institution or to get into relationships with other people definitely are grounds for disputes. But there's limits to which you can um, kind of agree on your law by all agreeing on what your expectations are up front. Um, and big major conflicts like ending central banking globally, uh, you know, are, are you know, exactly the kinds of disputes where, like, there's, like, deep questions about, like, whether or not, like, they're, like legally it's possible to end central banking using private law where basically you're just trying to, like, all agree to end central banking. I mean, I don't... I don't think that that's actually possible. I think that there's like a big public law aspect here. And in public law, it's not this kind of like opt-in. We all get to expect the rules we agreed to are like what we get. Um, It's much more of like a a many stakeholders duking it out over over these issues. Um, And the other thing to note is that like these projects are highly political and you know i'm not suggesting that like when i say that there's going to be crypto law that that these political goals are going to change or not be be uh represented or not be like part of um the legal culture or representations etc like the like you know law is political and politics is legalistic and um so 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 i don't mean to sit to like try to like neuter the political side of things when I'm saying um, that we have like crypto law that is like, you know, the, uh, an alternative to mutability. Okay. I, I think my last question for you concerns the state of open source software. And I know that one of your former collaborators, I'm not going to mention his name, it doesn't matter was very much in favor of socializing stuff and the idea that you should have dev taxes and stuff like that. And I'm not sure if that's in the spirit of open source software and to which extent people can just hard fork, not hard fork, to, what's the term for it? Um, So to fork it, to fork the code from GitHub and create a new version that eliminates the dev tax and all of the stuff that's undesirable from the code. And where do you stand in this whole ethos of creating free open source software and how do you think it should be monetized? Yeah, I mean, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, different, a difficult and complicated um, kind of institutional arrangement story. Basically, the reason why I think um, there's like such a strong norm today against like developer issuance of coins is because there's this idea that like the developers should kind of like create something immutable and then like leave it and like it should be kind of done at some point, you know, the, because like of this immutability kind of regime, like the idea of like ongoing fund funding for development and like indefinitely having developers as like an independent stakeholder group from like miners or coin holders is something that's kind of contentious and people are afraid of like setting up this kind of like. Um, you know, corrupt governance of of cryptocurrency, and so they don't want to create that kind of um, you know developer compensation as part of the protocol. Um, for me, you know, I mean, um, I, 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 I I I like I like it when the economics makes sense. Like, I don't. I think that like the way that 
protocol economics today works is not really reflecting of the like negotiation between stakeholders that like is really ongoing and unfortunately really just like favors coin holders or and miners and so like these two stakeholder groups get to like really really get a better side of the negotiation than anyone else and um sometimes even um, even between themselves, they 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 are they're, they're in conflict, uh, and so like they're not necessarily like always aligned. But like the stakeholder groups of like coin holders and miners are like very much represented in the protocol and with like the protocol norms, and 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 so if you try to change these things, the miners and stakeholders basically are like, uh, are, sorry, miners and coin holders are 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 kind of very resistant because they're used to being treated very well, and like you know. Uh, whereas, like, if we were to have like kind of like a more reasonable economic situation, you know, like mining wouldn't be compensated like in proportion to all the price of coins, but more in proportion to like like the security needs of the network. You know, like people wouldn't be compensated in proportion to the price of coins in terms of developers. Like they'd be compensated in proportion to like their development costs. You know, you would, you could imagine just like there being some economic rationale and equilibration around expenses and like the infrastructure uh, as opposed to this kind of, you know, we have some constants and they're fixed in the protocol and then we kind of like don't even equilibrate and things go wild and like, you know, like people's incentives like will just like be totally unpredictable uh, or be like relatively unpredictable. Like, uh, you know, in my opinion, like all these parameters should be subject to constant renegotiation and like that's like you know um you know block rewards should go down when the price of like coins go up and like stuff like this like we should like you know when the price of coins go down like block rewards should go up and like you know this just to kind of have a more reasonable economics um but you know having a more reasonable economics like you know equilibrating responding to market conditions is cuts against the immutability norm and so, and so I think and so does like protocol funding or funding of protocol development, and so I think like basically the the immutability norm is so big and takes up so much place it tries to cut out all this activity, and so and it, you know in defense of coin holders and miners also uh, that like basically like those three things together make it really hard for people to have kind of a reasonable kind of protocol economics that actually covers the expenses of of the protocol, so to speak. Yeah, that's definitely an interesting take. And also, if you're to recommend one book of philosophy and one book of law to somebody who wants to get in and learn something new, which one would they be? Like, what are your favorites? Uh, that's a great question. Um, I I haven't actually read any law books. How embarrassing is that, right? I, I've just kind of like... I do a lot of research, talk to my like law friends, like mostly, you know, um, like in kind of formally and not. So I don't know if I really have a, a recommendation right now on the law front. Um, on the philosophy front, I really recommend absurdism. Um, but, uh, you know, l'étranger, I mean, I don't know. I, I, it's hard for me to... Uh, to recommend books, I'm not really like a huge written tradition guy. I'm like much more into the spoken tradition. I think that like when you write things down, it's a becomes like this kind of like 
uninteractive format where the inability to interrupt and clarify really changes like the flow of things. Like I'm really into this spoken tradition, written tradition. I mean, I think, sorry, as opposed to written spoken tradition as opposed to the written tradition. So I think like if you want to get into law, you should get into disputes. I mean, that's the easiest, fastest way to experience the law directly in a way that you can like really feel. Um, And then um, if you want to get into philosophy, uh, you basically have to like struggle with concepts and um, you know philosophy in in a lot of ways today is kind of dead because like if you try to do some philosophy you'll have some nerd come up and provide you with a bunch of knowledge or models that tries to make your philosophy problem go away as if it's like not even coherent or or, or, or something like that um, and and so like you know um, it's hard for me to recommend that people, you know, like like talk to other people about philosophy. Uh, I, I recommend more just like being responsible for the way that you interpret stuff and like asking questions and like really kind of do engaging in this kind of, you know, uh, trolling where you just really try to say, really try to um, get to the bottom of, of conceptual situations but I don't know I guess I feel like I've, I, I've kind of I'm kind of trying to avoid the question here um, don't read books okay but if I were to complete what you said but in terms of books that I read I guess in terms of philosophy you'd recommend something like Plato just because it asks questions and it teaches you how to ask questions and from which point of view to analyze every topic plus if you read something like the Republic is going to have a lot of interesting ideas about how you establish either a political system or a network or anything else in terms of understanding the trade-offs, the checks and balances, and everything that you find in between, from propaganda to education to how you create an army and everything like that. And if you take the metaphor to computer systems, I suppose it can be very instructional. And in law, I think something that you would like and you would agree with is The Spirit of the Laws by Montesquieu, which is a classic. It basically explains <laughs> that there are two dimensions to every law. There's the letter of the law, which can be interpreted in many ways. And then you have the spirit of the law, which means that you have the intentions behind the law. Because you can write something, let's say the Second Amendment, right? You have the spirit of the law, which is contextual to what the authors meant. And then you have the letter of the law, which can be reinterpreted 250 years later and have a whole different meaning. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I hear you. And I don't know so much about it. So, like, I I, 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 I don't know. I, I wouldn't be so quick to recommend these books. I mean, basically, um, um, the reason basically is that, like, when you're doing philosophy and law in a contemporary setting, um, you know, I think I think there's like I mean, obviously, understanding history is super important, but it's also possible to kind of like get stuck in like really old ideas of, you know, law, state, politics, philosophy, organization, and stuff. And 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 I I kind of really believe in um, taking responsibility in your current context and like in a way that's like custom fitting for your current context. And so um, 
it's hard. It's hard. It's hard for me to agree. I mean, I guess. I guess. Let me say it like this. I think people should like do philosophy and like have legal judgment um, uh, much more than I think they should delegate their like philosophical and legal growth to like others. Not that I'm saying you shouldn't learn from the, from the past. Um, I just think that like the the process of like learning, interpreting, and the process of like creating and solving problems are quite different. Um, and so like, you know, I, I, I like to, I like to, I like to, I, I like to recommend that people like grapple with like real problems today rather than, you know, try to like learn what philosophers thought or what legal doctrines are. Yeah, but sometimes I, I think yeah. it's nice to figure out where it all started in terms of culture and tradition. Plus, I I don't think too much has changed in the last two thousand years. Like we are kind of the same people struggling with the same problems. We invented some neat technological stuff, but other than that, we have kind of the same struggles. And maybe that some existential questions exist by virtue of discovering some new technologies or changing our way of living but yeah i mean i think that you know like the non-territorial nature of contemporary conflict the you know like the is like a big one like in law and i think in 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 philosophy um it basically um you know, you kind of have to grapple today with like postmodernism and post-structuralism in a way that like I don't think Plato ever had to. I can agree with that, but you know, personally, I'm not a very big fan of everything which has the post prefix. Yeah, well, um, you know, I hear you. I I used to not be, but um, but then I started to really get it, and now I'm like post post. <laughs> Post, post. That, that's a good one. I don't think there is any official terminology that's actually using the post, posts prefix. No, it is. Yeah, yeah. Post, postmodernism is totally a thing. It is. Yeah. Absolutely. So, how is it different from the postmodernism? Oh, it basically like uh, rejects some of the uh, deconstructive premises. Like deconstructs postmodernism. So, like postmodernism is a deconstruction of modernism. Post, postmodernism is a deconstruction of postmodernism. Okay, but why, uh, why not like give a, a, ways to go give about it a doing different that. name? Like you had classicism, you had modernism, you had postmodernism. Why not come up with something new? Well, because it's a deconstruction of postmodernism. So I mean, I mean, if you're reacting to postmodernism and then you like are like, okay, here's what's wrong with postmodernism, like blah blah blah, like you know, there's like all sorts of different ways to do it. And then like, and then all of a sudden you're like, okay, I'm not a postmodernist anymore. I'm a post-postmodernist. It's just like, I think it's like correct, like analytically to use that language. Yeah, but I, I can also argue that modernism is, is a response and a criticism to classicism, but it's not post-classicism, it's modernism. Um, yeah, so I think that like, uh, you know, the post, uh, so, so I'm not sure. I mean, I think, I think that the... Uh, Postmodern is the modernism in postmodernism and the modernism in modernism maybe are are a little different, 
And so, um, like postmodernism, you know, as a reaction to a particular deconstructive view of modernism. And so I think that like the deconstructive kind of posture um, is there when you say post Xism, but is not there when you just give a new Yism for it. Okay. I mean, it doesn't mean that I necessarily agree and I can think of different ways of phrasing it, but since I'm, not, I'm no expert in post-postmodernism and I haven't read any relevant literature in this field, I'm not going to argue too much against it. Well, you know, there's so many different, there's, there's so many different ways that people have like gotten out of postmodernism, so to speak. Um, and, uh, and so there's not like one post-postmodernism. Um, but, you know, uh, it's fun and like worthwhile kind of philosophy that like, uh, you know, um, you know, is like super relevant today in politics today. And if you, if you kind of like just replay it or like, I don't know if you'll get that. This was a non-expectedly interesting conversation, Vlad, not to say that I did not expect it to be interesting, but I did not expect it to get into so much law and philosophy stuff. Yeah, my, my pleasure really. Uh, it was fun. Yeah, so we should do this some other time. And I thank you very much for your time. Yeah, my pleasure. And, uh, you know, um, I take full liability for all the mistakes I made. And sorry, guys. <laughs> but, you know, uh, I uh, yeah, feel free to hit me up if you, ha if you disagree with anything. How can people hit you up, by the way? Oh, they have to at me on Twitter. Okay, that's simple. So just at Vlad Zamfair on Twitter. I suppose that's your... Mm -hmm. tag on Twitter. Other than this, yeah, no space, no space, no dashes, no nothing. <laughs> no underscore. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you very much for doing this interview and have a nice rest of your day. We'll talk later. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. -bye. Golden Bitcoin, 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 golden Bitcoin. Voltora. 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 Wasabi Wallet's innovative coin joints will make your bitcoins more fungible. So if you accumulate more than 0.1 BTC, you can mix it with other users to remove all traces about their whereabouts. So it's like putting multiple fingerprints on your dollar bills and it becomes impossible to determine the last few owners of the money. Download Wasabi Wallet today and start coin joining.